When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and once again, I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher, and this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. 2007 really wasn't all that long ago, and as such, it's difficult for us to see some of the historical markers that have revealed themselves in some of our earlier episodes. But one of the big trends we can see is that people were really into dark and gritty stories. When you look at some of the biggest movies of the year, you're seeing people go to Zodiac en masse. This is a really violent movie about serial killers and also, weirdly, a very boring movie. Uh, There's also No Country for Old Men, again, a very dark, gritty kind of film, and of course, Sweeney Todd. Even kids' movies like Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix ends with the downer of Sirius Black's death and the fact that Gary Oldman isn't in the movies anymore, so why watch them? There's television, too. You're looking at CSI, Criminal Minds, and, of course, Dexter being, like, the biggest thing, which started another debate in my house of whether or not that show is good. It's going to be a whole thing. Anyway, why do you guys think people were into these, like, super vicious movies that's still going for now? I think we were super depressed. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I mean, we're going to get into that today. We've got some some stuff coming. Yeah, yeah. I also just think it's a thing that it always is. You know, people always love seeing dark things. And But what you're talking about is, like, the third and fourth movie of a lot of series. I think you start running out of ways to make Mm -hmm. it interesting. (laughs) without it going super dark i mean also just when you look honestly it's a part we've cut out of the show but when we were looking up if you look up history for instance canadian history most of the memorable things (laughs) tend to be very dark stuff for instance i will say uh in 2007 uh, people might remember that feet started washing Mm -hmm. ashore in british columbia oh yeah Uh, and Severed feet. In single, in single like, shoes, right? Yes. Like, that was the whole thing, mm-hmm. yeah. And we've never really figured it out. We think it's just dead bodies they come off of automatically. The dark stuff is memorable, too, because there's, there's plenty of dopey, you know, Ratatouille, Transformers. <laughs> we just we just remember uh, National Treasure, the Book of Secrets, Alicia's favorite, I'm sure. I've never seen it. Um, <laughs> Mr. Bean's Holiday. I've seen that, and I you love know? it. <laughs> these these great films films like norbit uh they're all here but i think for some reason uh we don't remember them as much mm-hmm. you well know? as we discussed previously there's like a weird line we have for our award shows where we're like we're gonna award the like dark and dramatic horrible stuff but here is our line like mm. we don't give it to horror I... but we do give it to zodiac right like yeah. it's a very strange thing i think there's... it should be said that I love Zodiac, and I think Alicia does, too. I do, so. yes. We, we, we will not stand for your Zodiac bashing. <laughs> I think there's a moment to a pivot in in studios where they realize that even if something gets rated R or higher, um, it didn't actually mean that much of a decrease in box office. Like, in some yeah. ways, there's a cachet to it being very violent and very sexual and very dark that, you know, this could actually spell 
long-term, not immediate, but long-term box office success by being so notorious? Actually, interestingly, to go back uh, an episode, Stephen Sondheim talks about how he thinks Silence of the Lambs really changed things. Yeah. Because he said that, you know, if somebody could see this guy who ate people and be like, I'm on his side. (laughs) He's like, from then on out, uh, you could write any character. I actually think that concept of the artist as serial killer is very, very relevant to our first movie. We're going to talk about that one. And uh, I believe we have mixed reviews on this one as well. But I think the best way to think about this is if there is a book you guys had as a kid that like really stuck with you that you like not only related to it but like it inspired you because mine was Franny and Zooey by Salinger mm-hmm. which will also be relevant later on oh me do I have one yeah do you guys have anything like that that was like yes this book this is my new bible uh, the adventures of Ca- Cavalier and Clay was probably like that for me um the Michael Chabon I, I don't know I guess I, my, my big ones were like uh uh, Moby Dick and the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy. <laughs> which know. is why you, you went mm. on your whaling expedition at age 12. Mm, exactly. That's why I always think about taking to the sea when I'm depressed. Adorable. <laughs> uh, don't we all, Cam? Don't yeah. we all? Uh, I mean, we've seen by the sea. We can see how it can be yeah, so lovely. Yeah. That having been said, there is a book that uh, mega superstar Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, he had a novel from 1980s Germany that he felt incredibly strongly about. I've read Perfume by Patrick Suskin about ten times in my life, and uh, I can't stop reading it. It's like something that's just stationary in my pocket all the time. It just doesn't leave me, and every time I'm bored, like I'm on an airplane or something, I read it over and over again, because I'm a hypochondriac, and it just affects me. It makes me want to cut my nose off. And it seems like an awful lot of people read, loved, and related to Perfume. It's the second biggest selling German novel after All Quiet on the Western Front. It's one of those books that like seems like it is unfilmable, and maybe even though a movie has been made of it, it might still be unfilmable. <laughs> Let's talk about Perfume, Story of a Murderer, and perhaps one of the biggest, who is this movie for, and how did it get such a huge release movies? We've talked about Alicia. Let's talk being orgied out of existence. Yeah, so I should say I read Perfume upon Kurt Cobain's recommendation quite early in my life, and it probably far too early. Um, I was way too young to understand it, and I read it again in my 20s, and I'm a huge fan of this book. And it's about a serial killer in, um, well, it's pre-revolution France, which is very, Mm. very important uh, to the story, actually. And uh, it's directed by Tom Tom Teichfer. For everybody's sake, we have looked up how to pronounce this. We are like 90% sure that's what it is, so that's what we're going with. Depending on how German you want to be, it's Tickver or Tickver. I'd say Tickver. Uh, yeah. T- when yeah. I went to the Berlin Al when he was the head of the jury, his that name was just is imparted on me because it's of course we say Tom Tyker basically in North America and he's known for mm. Run Lola Runs. So he's a name that we all yeah. recognize, but it's I have second year university German, so I do think I might be an authority on this. Oh, sure. <laughs> Um, anyway, this takes place in Paris, although it's filmed mostly in Barcelona and uh, other areas of Catalonia. And it's about a baby who is born into absolute drudgery in the fish market, is becomes an orphan after his mother is hanged because she tried to kill him at birth. Uh, and then he has this incredible otherworldly sense of smell. He can smell anything and not just like nice smells. It makes the film makes very clear. And I think it does very effectively how disgusting 
Paris would have been. And he ends up becoming an apprentice to a perfumier, which is, am I saying that right? Perfumier. Yes, perfumier. That's correct. (laughs) Yeah. I'm sure if you want to get more French, you could get weirder. My pronunciations of all languages is terrible, including English. But, uh, and that's played by Dustin Hoffman. And he becomes obsessed with preserving essentially a visual or a feeling through scent. So he becomes enraptured by young women who would never really see him. He's very good at disappearing. He's This is played by Ben Wishaw. The, the character's name is Jean-Baptiste Grenouille. The voice of Paddington, people. So this Don't, will give you a very different mm. view. As someone who is probably Paddington, the Paddington franchise's biggest fan, I don't want to talk <laughs> about the fact that that is also Ben Wishaw. Um, I love Ben Wishaw. And this is one of his earliest roles. He was really a, a newly discovered mm. talent. He starts killing women, young, beautiful women, and tries to distill their scent. And so he becomes effectively a serial killer. And of course, the town, it's both takes place in Paris and in Graz, are terrified that their young, their young women, their their sisters, their 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 daughters are being killed off. And so it's it becomes sort of a hunt down film. But what it does with scent, because how do you depict scent on film? Mm-hmm. It's easier to write about, and Susskind does a very good job in the novel, you know, when you can read words about what things smells like, memories come flooding back. And like, for me, scent is the, I think for a lot of people, scent is the biggest trigger to a memory. I can smell Wonder Bread, because there's a Wonder Bread factory, I think in Leslieville. And when I smell that, I am instantly taken back to my grandmother's bread drawer in her 1930s little, you know, house where if you pulled that drawer open, you would smell like 70 years of Wonder Bread. And I don't eat Wonder Bread myself, but like that smell can take, makes me so happy because it reminds me of my grandmother. How do you put things like that on film? And so as much as I think we're going to talk about perhaps this film being at times atrocious, I think Tom Tykver tries and does quite a good job of depicting scent on film. I will give you that this film is, number one, absolutely gorgeous. This is a beautiful movie. Mm -hmm. Number two, I give it that it was marketed very strangely. It's Mm -hmm. marketed to be Mm -hmm. almost like a Fifty Shades of Grey, very sexy sort of film. Yeah, like BDSM. I can imagine like all of these bored suburban housewives going to this movie, expecting to be titillated, and then the first scene happens where this newborn baby is dropped into a bunch of fish guts as dogs are pulling it (laughs) apart. Like, 90 percent of my notes are like this is gross this is gross it's this is gross, gross. Yeah. because that visual is also part of the scent um if you feel gross you're like yeah that would smell gross like it sort mm-hmm. of adds to that mm-hmm. um but i just love the idea of these women just like staring in st- silence and everyone looking at each other being like should we should we go like what is yeah. this and one woman being totally into it and i think as a historical as a period film period films attract tend to attract a certain demographic. You know, this looks, looked like it could have been dangerous liaisons, and mm. it very much isn't. I mm. would actually say that this is probably one of the the biggest anti-romantic films um, yeah. that sure. you could really conceive of. And so I do think it had a huge marketing pitfall. Like, I don't know how. I, I'm glad I wasn't the publicist on this film back yeah. in the day. Apparently, it was hugely marketed in Germany and very successful. Well, they're Germans. Huge in Europe. We know um, what the Germans, they, they understand this. I, I mean, <laughs> it's also worth saying that we are saying this this movie isn't very sexy, yet it features one of the largest orgies two ever orgies. depicted on film. Two orgies, yeah. Consisting of <laughs> yeah. 750 people for that one, which yes. is wild. O- only 100 
orgies. Yeah, yes. but seven hundred and fifty people. Seven hundred and fifty overall. Tom many in nude. casting the orgy, which I'm sure was a fun process, went to a dance troupe, a very famous avant-garde dance troupe, mm. and so the orgy, which is the climax of the film, <laughs> see what I did there, is slow motion. So you're really seeing body movement, and it makes sense to me that these are avant-garde dancers. It's it's very well done, and then there's a second orgy, which I don't think will spoil. It's much darker and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. You know, is sort of the resolution of the film. It looks so, so beautiful. It was the most expensive German film up to that time. It might actually still be. I'm not sure if something has topped it. And it's, you know, if we're looking yeah. at the Peter Susskind book, the the source material, this has, which was published in 1985, this has been passed along from director to director in terms of interest. Like at one point, Scorsese was going to adapt it. Milos Forman, Stanley Kubrick before his death was interested. Um, at, at certain points, this film, the screenplay, once it was approved for adaptation, was attached to Tim Burton, coming back to the previous episode of Sweeney Todd. It was attached this is to— like Rid- Confederacy of Dunces style, yeah. like somebody's got to mm. do this, but how the hell do you do it? Yeah, Ridley Scott was attached. Julian Schnabel which was attached, which, of course, instead he made in 2007, um, Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which has come up a number of times, actually, in this podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think, for me, of that <laughs> canon of incredible directors, I would want to see Julian Schnabel do this. On, with a less yeah. budget. So apparently the script he wrote was that's what he used the basis of to make Diving Bell and the Butterfly because it was much more like stream of consciousness, things yeah. just happening. And we should also say like 90% of this movie is silent. Like there's mm-hmm. a there's like a little bit of dialogue mm-hmm. at the beginning and then a whole bunch of action mm-hmm. at the end. And big stars are killed off quite quickly. Yes. I know. So I loved this film when I first saw it. Hadn't revisited it until this podcast. And now I am concerned about my love of it like I'm looking back and I'm like well it was 13 years ago and I was in my early to mid 20s how have I evolved in that time to an extent that I look at this film differently how has that changed for you Alicia well I'm more aware of misogyny and I'm more sensitive to sexual violence against women and so this film has all of those things it's a deeply misogynistic movie. This really, this bothered me. Like, it genuinely upset me. How could it not be, though? Because then I remember how much I love the book. And yeah. I do think this is quite mm-hmm. a faithful adaptation of a book that is seemingly impossible to adapt. So I give it respect for that. I applaud that this film was made. I just don't want to have to talk about it ever again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would maybe argue that there is a, it, could, it kind of saves itself from being totally misogynistic by being more just misanthropic. Mm-hmm. Like, he hates men, yeah, too. Yeah. He just doesn't kill them because they don't yeah. smell good. I think no. a lot of it comes down to class. I think what both Tom mm-hmm. Teichfer and Susskind in the book are interested in is gender is definitely there, obviously. But a lot of it is, you know, Ben Wishaw's character, um, Grinwe, is born into a subclass, essentially. When he's able to, tr- because he can create any scent, he's able to manipulate people's perceptions of him and emotions. He's able to, when he eventually makes his masterpiece, his perfume, and this is what triggers the orgy scene, he's able, and he looks disgusting in this film. He grows up in a tannery, and this is really Mm. accurate. This is how most people would not survive people, children, most children who are taken from orphanages or sold um, from orphanages and worked in tanneries in the 18th and 19th centuries didn't make it past 12. Like, that was their life expectancy. And the film makes a, a really good, he looks absolutely 
disgusting, like a monster. Even though Ben Wishaw is such an attractive and, and adorable looking person, mm. like his skin is stained in patches and he he's really a subclass of person. And I think that's more what it's about. And the women in the beginning that he attacks are women who were also in that subclass that no one would miss and no one would report. And then he works well, his that's way the, up. The, the concept of the less dead for serial killers yeah. in the 60s and 70s where like all these, I mean, specifically with the Green River Killer, this is my nerd point. Uh, the Green River Killer was killing predominantly sex workers. And so yes. who cared, right? Mm. Like yes. that's kind of how this works. Yeah. But they're only caught when we, they kill quote unquote women we care about, which is exactly. horrible. Yeah. yeah. I think also a thing you're reacting to is what we were talking about with like how it's shot. Like uh, Tom Tickford says like the, the problem with shooting a movie that's about scent is he's like, I can only point a camera at somebody's nose so many <laughs> yeah. times. The unfortunate thing is the only way to depict the visual, because he, the thing is, is he, he's getting this scent off of women that he doesn't get off anyone mm-hmm. else. And that's what makes him this obsessed maniac. And I think, unfortunately, the only way to do that in the style Tom Tickford's trying is to, uh, you know, male gaze the <laughs> Dehumanize shit out of women. these women <laughs> like, and reduce them literally yeah. to their parts. Like, yeah. And super sexualized. <laughs> like, I think the interesting thing is you don't see in the way Ben Wishaw plays it. That it's sexual. But it is. But unfortunately, I think, yeah, the only way to, like, show off that these are beautiful, like, they're all modelly looking ladies. Let's just talk about that. They're all redheads. And I think the redhead thing, I don't know if that's in the book, but that's that's obviously a very sensual choice. I was trying to remember that, and I could be wrong, and and maybe listeners know better, but I don't believe... No, they're not all redheads. I yeah. don't believe that's a thing. I would be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if he changed it because that's his whole thing. Like also throughout the film, he purposefully has a very muted color palette, mm-hmm. and then every time he smells something, he adds another color. So it's like yeah. uh, it's supposed to get more and more colorful till the end. So yeah, it, it's just an unfortunate kind of side effect where you do have to really just gaze so hard, and yeah, yeah I, I don't even know if there's a way around it. This made me think so much about the film The Collector from 1965, which Mm -hmm. is a film I think people Mm -hmm. should see because it is incredibly iconic and it really changed the game in terms of the concept of the serial killer and how they were portrayed because that is a empathetic view of a serial killer. It's a guy who captures a young woman and basically Stockholm syndromes her until she falls in love with him and it's empathetic towards him. Do we do we have it mm-hmm. on Hollywood Suite right now? I believe we ought to. So check our <laughs> yeah, check our Yeah, like I said it's something people should see just to like because it is so necessary for film history. It got nominated for like a ton of Academy Awards. Like it was very mm. prestigious and it's the first time we really started to think about the anti-hero in that way on film in this particular particular way. And um so I mean you see the same thing happening with like Hannibal Lecter in every variation of him. He's an artist, Mm -hmm. right? He's this intellectual. In some ways, we do relate to him, even though he kills and eats people in horrible ways and manipulates them intellectually. And this has that exact same kind of thing. I just think it actually might be the Ben Whitshaw performance that I just can't get that because it's played so... Blank and almost animalistically, especially when he's hunting her down, when uh, the Alan Rickman character is taking away the daughter he's obsessed with. And the way he hunts her down mm-hmm. like an animal is just so uncomfortable for me that I re- that she basically is that I really don't feel comfortable with. Do you feel like he Fair. is romanticized? Because I don't feel like he is. I think there are parts where he where you are meant to empathize with him because of how bad his upbringing is and its excuses for the way why he is the way he is and his lack of moral character. Maybe if if. That was the intention on Tom Tykfer's part. It's a failure because one of the things I think is really interesting is 
I have no empathy for Grunwi. I do when he's a baby being discarded for the first 45 seconds of the film. I have no compassion or empathy for him. And I actually think that that is perhaps perhaps a saving grace because there's there's a lot of films about serial mm. killers or if we're talk, coming back to, of course, uh, Silence of the Lambs that make abs- the absolute point is to empathize with a monster. Is that in? Is that empathy in the book? No, it's not there. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. It's like you're, it's very point of view and mm-hmm. like uh, creepy. But I also, it's also worth saying that this, like, beyond him killing people, he's also like essentially cursed. Every person he ever met meets meets a terrible fate that is not connected yeah. to him. They just die terrible ways. And that's why, like you say, famous actors get dispatched <laughs> very quickly because the minute Ben Wachow leaves the scene, they get run over by a horse kind cart Kind of hilariously, they're dispatched. Yes. Yes. Very funny. Uh, and I mean, that's the funny thing is like Dustin Hoffman, apparently a huge Run Lola Run fan, mm. had really wanted to be in a Tom Taper movie. And, and yeah, he's this silly he character that's up. there for about... 20 minutes and then his house collapses on him. That scene with Dustin Hoffman was actually one of the first things they shot. Ben Whitshaw received an interesting uh, blessing, I guess, from Dustin Hoffman as soon as they were done shooting together. On my last day of shooting with Dustin Hoffman, he said, thank you, Ben, and good luck. You're now making a silent movie. If there's one, if there's something to really praise this film for, it's the attention to detail. Like, just Mm. looking at you know, the issue of costuming. They had to costume 1,400 extras and Mm. and background characters, but also the lead characters. They had the costumes made in Bucharest and then shipped them to Barcelona where they were setting up production and had to then, like, grease up and dirty 1,400 beautiful costumes (laughs) to look authentic to... Because obviously in the 1760s there were no washing machines. That kind of thing is quite impressive. And I also like... Maybe this is a spoiler. I like that the dog saves the day. I can see that. Oh, yeah. Great little lap dogs. Pekingese. I definitely wrote a note of that. Uh, Love all the tiny dogs. Yeah, great tiny dogs. Just living their lives. I also love the fact that this is the second time we have a film that you're like, why does this have the biggest budget in the world? It was to launder money. Uh, really? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Man fully went to jail on this oh, movie. Thank you, Cam. Uh, Cam coming in in the clinch with the weird trivia. Uh, Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was uh, some sort of laundering state subsidies. Uh, and in 2007, uh, the guy was, uh, one of the producers was found guilty of multiple counts of tax evasion and sentenced to six years in prison. Probably the reason why the budget is so big, probably the reason why it is as long as it is with most much producer oversight is it seems like maybe they were doing a bit of a producers Mm. again and just didn't care. Though one of the major producers was just using it to essentially uh, get government subsidies and and use them on his own, uh, which is wonderful. But I don't know. There's a lot of interesting stuff along the side of it, I think. It's very interesting, like, again, but this is really what made Ben Wichaw, uh, he had a, he was on TV and stuff, and he had a, but he had this big Hamlet production, which everybody loved, and that's what uh, Tom Tickford saw and cast him. I'm super obsessed with the fact that Terry Mueller made a perfume series oh based on this oh film. Oh my god. But again, that, that leads into, like, who is this for? Like, what what do they think this, the market <laughs> Apparently is the so very weird. rich. Oh if you have uh, $700 for a uh, limited edition set, which includes... Paris in 1738, a virgin's navel, a clean baby, <laughs> oh, and leather perfume. Jesus Christ. Uh, God. They were all sold. They're, they're out there, though. That's an eBay auction oh, I would get. I feel <laughs> ill. 
<laughs> so upsetting. I liked learning so much about perfume. Oh, good. Sure. I don't wear. Yeah. I don't yeah, it wear is it. A great I, I get migraines perfume. from perfume, so I felt like I was getting a migraine even watching this film. But uh, yeah, the the craft of it and how they portray it uh, historically, how it was made, I thought was fascinating. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do want to bring it into Patrick Susskind just for a minute because he, as we talked about, this film was, or this book was considered unadaptable and like everyone was chasing Mm -hmm. for the rights. And uh, Patrick Susskind actually wrote a movie in 1997 called Rossini about how annoying it was to have producers Mm -hmm. chase after him for the rights to his novels. Mm -hmm. Um, So I love that that exists. That makes me very happy. Uh, It's also worth saying that Tom Tickford, I think, makes a business of adapting things that are considered unadaptable. He famously tried to launch uh, Crystal Kozlowski's uh, trilogy that he wrote but died Mm -hmm. before he could make with Heaven. Uh, He made Cloud Atlas with the Wachowski sisters. Uh, Yeah, and I mean, he he often does novels that I think people consider hard. He's doing Babylon Berlin right now. He's a showrunner I watched that. that. I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, it's three different German directors there. It's a very, everybody German (laughs) is involved. But uh, yeah, so he's kind of a, I think he kind of relishes the thought of uh, adapting the unadaptable, whether or not this was a Which, as we, as we heard in our Orlando episode, as Tilda Swinton says, if somebody says something is unadaptable, mm-hmm. you just might be on the right track for something good. Mm-hmm. Or not, mm-hmm. but maybe something good. <laughs> At least you're doing something different, and that's what matters, right? I would yeah. love to see um, pioneering canonical German filmmaker Rainier Werner Fassbender adapt this. I mean, okay. he's dead. Yeah. very dead, but I would love to yeah. see what he would have done <laughs> with this. Dig him up. Get on it. We'll just get his hologram can... version. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to know what smells that guy's after. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Although this is like an unadaptable film, our next film is about like constant nonstop references and self-awareness. And that's very much a trend from the 2000s. I mean, we all feel clever when like we get the joke or we get the reference. I'm very much guilty of this. But in 2007, the most pop culture referencing self-aware filmmaker out there, and I'm not talking about Tarantino, he made a movie that contains a scene where the characters literally sit down and watch the movie they are parodying in that film. <laughs> that movie? Hello. Hello. This is Nick Frost. He's one of the most expensive props on the film. <laughs> yeah, I am. What have you done so far on Hot Fuzz? Stunt, some gun work, and I ate two cakes. <laughs> two whole cakes. I just love hearing Simon Pegg and Nick Frost say the word fuzz because I think it's delightful. (laughs) Let's talk about hot fuzz. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about unadaptable things, uh, Edgar Wright feels deep in his soul that there kind of is no such thing as a great British cop (laughs) film. And the concept of a British cop movie is on its face hilarious. Uh, So he uh, wanted to make the great, not only the great British cop film, but the great British country cop film. Uh, So he set out to uh, make his follow up to Shaun of the Dead uh, with Simon Pegg in tow, continuing his Cornetto trilogy, as they call it, uh, with this kind of silly... But not parody. He's, he, uh, he really wants to state that this is not a parody. Uh, this story of a uh, hyper-confident police officer, kind of a switch from Shaun of the Dead, a lazy guy who can't do anything. Instead, this is an annoying guy who is too good at everything, uh, who is sent to the country and uh, has to first deal with just the boring life of being a cop in the country in England, but slowly begins to reveal 
an incredibly sinister uh, kind of, I don't even know, Wicker Man-esque mm. conspiracy yeah. in the tiny village in which he lives. Uh, and uh, he ends up teaming up with uh, Nick Frost, who's a dopey, uh, you know, the country policeman you expect, but who is obsessed with action movies. And, of course, is immediately falls in love with Simon Pegg's character because this guy is an action character come to life. I also love that the only thing Nick Frost requested was that he got to name his own character and he went with Daniel Butterman. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell if that story is real or not, but I, I love it. I do, too. It. I'm yeah. standing uh, by it. I, and, yeah, this is very much... It's an action movie. It's a crazy comedy. And it's very much weirdly a love story between Simon Pegg and Nick Frost. Apparently, originally, there was a love interest, but they canned that character and just gave all of her lines to Nick Frost without changing a word. <laughs> so uh, it's this very charming story of these two buddies. Uh, Kind of, yeah, like getting into a, a insane situation. Like Edgar Wright is a name that people will recognize. Same with Simon Pegg, like very much a name. Nick mm-hmm. Frost, not quite as much, but definitely Simon Pegg. Mm-hmm. And people need to remember that like they had just come off Shaun of the Dead and Shaun of the Dead was huge. And so for this mm-hmm. one, they got total carte blanche of like, what movie do you guys want to make? And they were like, this, we want to make this. <laughs> so their budget for this was significantly higher, which is why that back end last 15 minutes is bananas. I love that back end. And they got they got yeah, the actors it, they wanted to work with, too, like Timothy yeah. Dalton. Oh, we love Timothy oh, Dalton. Yeah. It's amazing when you listen to interview clips about how excited people were that Timothy Dalton was there, because in North America, mm-hmm. not as big a star. Other people that kind of that come into your sort of subconscious, you start writing with that visual, and for some reason you don't think that you would ever get those those people. And weirdly, Timothy Dalton's casting was a little bit like that. Is before we'd even approached him or even thought about approaching him in that slightly stupid way, kind of gone You're like a Timothy Dalton type. And then eventually, kind of the very, you know, the, what should have been clearly obvious right at the start is to go, when did we get Timothy Dalton to play that part? I remember when Tim started reading the lines, me and Edgar just looked at each other and went like this because we knew we'd found a man. He'd been doing TV and stuff, but he hadn't quite had a role as big as this. And I think this caused rather a comeback. Edgar Wright, when he was filming Scott Pilgrim in Toronto, he did all these kind of Toronto events. And I saw Edgar Wright do an introduction Mm. for Flash Gordon. And that's like one of his favorite movies. And he loves Timothy Dalton in it. And Timothy Dalton loves Flash Gordon, weirdly. Timothy Dalton is always like, people didn't get it. It was a joke. Uh, He's great to hear interviewed about it. So I think that they kind of had that click and they wanted Timothy Dalton from the start as this great smarmy bad guy and apparently he is the most charming man on earth he comes and does all his coverage even on days when he should be off that like he literally shocked the entire cast and crew when he showed up one day and he's like well you know i'm my character's in this scene and they're like but you're timothy (laughs) you don't have to be here (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly uh so he probably got a stand-in fired but uh He's great. I mean, Jim Broadbent loved Shaun of the Dead so much that he was like, please put me in a movie. And uh... this is something I do have to bring up is originally the character of the wife of Jim Broadbent's character's name was Iris. And he made them change it because he thought it was too much of a reference. And I'm like, do you know what movie you are in? <laughs> like, it's very are yeah. you aware sweet of and this? naive. 
the interesting thing is it's so hard to stand up to yeah, Shaun of the Dead. It's perfect. Because Shaun of the Dead, I think, is just one of the most tightly written comedies almost mm-hmm. in cinema it's history. Perfect. Like it's it's just a yeah, it's a perfect film. And this doesn't quite come up to it, but the amount of things I do kind of quote in my head, including Jim Bradbent's going, he had a great big bushy beard. <laughs> <laughs> like always uh makes me laugh. And like I, I I forget so much. Again, it's like at least it's the joke a minute thing. There's every British comedic character actor you could ever think of. Everyone that was on Big Train was Simon Pegg. You've got a uh, Oscar winner mm-hmm. Olivia Coleman as the uh, r- rude, horny lady cop. Steve uh, Coogan. I mean, Martin Freeman. Bill Nye. Yeah. Bill Nye. Yeah, Bill Nye who came for like Steve, two yeah, hours. Steven, Steven Merchant shows up too. He's the one with the swan. The swan is my favorite part of this whole yes, film. Yes, the evil God, swan. I love this one. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean you've you've got Kate mm-hmm. Blanchett in an uncredited Peter role Jackson. where you can't even tell yeah. it's her. Peter Jackson in an uncredited role you can't tell it's him. It's lovely. And and I mean, it's down to the thing where he like he's so obsessed with these references where all these nice old people in the village you don't realize are character mm-hmm. actors from a- British action movies that are just like forgotten. There's people from like Raiders of the Lost Ark and License to Kill and No Escape so and The we're Equalizer. Talking about this is like enchanted levels of like deep dive stuff. Yeah. Oh, okay. yes. That I would n- I would never know <laughs> ever in a million years. I mean, some there's some references that are pretty obvious, and it's also crazy because this is an adaptation of a film. Like I'm yeah, for instance, Wicker Man. I said there's a guy mm-hmm. from Wicker Man, uh, and you're just like there's, okay. There's a lot of IMDb cross referencing that had to occur yeah. oh, while yeah. figuring this film out. It's worth going to the trivia <laughs> on IMDb for this one, but it's interestingly also a. Uh, he was an amateur filmmaker of some acclaim, Edgar Wright, and this is actually an adaptation, more or less, of an amateur film he made called Dead Right, uh, which it's the same original concept. He was just like, I want an action movie in Somerset. But that's what got him and, the job uh, for Spaced, isn't it? Dead Right got him Spaced. Yeah, I believe so. And there's also Fistful of Fingers, mm-hmm. I think, is a pr- was a pretty big hit, uh, which is his... Uh, Western. So th- there's a full sequences adapted from that amateur film as well, including the whole supermarket showdown, which oh, is one so of the better uh, yeah. action bits. Totally for me, it's a fascinating movie because it straight up turns into a slasher movie with all the impalements on the back end. If, if mm-hmm. impalements are a trigger for you, do not watch this. <laughs> Don't do it. Yeah, not not all of them yeah. are deadly impalements. Some of them are just going to like. No, some of them are living. Yeah, they're going to maim you a bit, but uh, they're very uncomfortable. Yeah, they, there's a lot of discussion about the gore because it's quite a gory film. Super actually. gory. Uh, and they decide, which I remember is a big thing Brian Fuller said about Hannibal, which I don't think worked. <laughs> where if you make the gore so nuts that it could never exist in real life. Uh, that makes it less scary. Ask but, Peter uh, Jackson about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's have and that I mean, discussion. Though, I, I think the guy's head exploding when mm-hmm. the top of a church falls on him. But that's a The is, Omen is, reference, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yes. I mean, yeah. I guess. But uh, it's also just the grossest thing in a more <laughs> what, mainstream what film you'll ever see. Deaths? Mine, mine was the old lady who does the crosswords getting um, taken out by a hanging flower basket. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> sure. I mean, I like the the woman who doesn't want more than one child in her shop and is like torn apart yeah, by children, <laughs> question mark, when many children enter her shop I, and kill her. I don't know. For me, I think it's the the death of the poor peace lily, that the peace mm-hmm. lily gets used to take out the giant goon. Mm-hmm. I'm very into that. Oh, yes, yeah, that the sure. peace lily is a character in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 
it's uh, just a strange movie. I, I guess it's it's always kind of hard to talk about comedy. Well, this one I, I think is really notable for the fact the way it was marketed. Because we talked about Wreck previously, that YouTube was mm. a new thing, 2005, and people were still starting to kind of figure out how it could be used. And the internet was also a big thing for marketing. People were still trying to figure out what the potential was to spread this stuff. And we talked mm. a little bit about Paranormal Activity, but we didn't talk about how it was marketed and how genius that marketing was, was that the trailers didn't show any footage from the film. They just had hidden cameras in the theater that showed audience reactions and how bad people were freaking out of this movie. I went to see that movie in the theater and people were like, someone cried next to us. There was someone who was leaving like it was, and it's not that scary a movie, but it obviously hit people the right way. But the brilliant thing about it was that they showed that trailer and then they had a thing at the end, a website to go to where you could demand it to see the film. It was like, I need to see this film. It needs to come near me. So they got Mm -hmm. more and more um, theaters to sign up and order it for, for distribution, which is Brilliant. This movie did something similar that no one had really done previously, where they started to do uh, almost immediately these daily diaries that were intended for YouTube and for the in- the internet. They had um, filming diaries, which you can watch the entirety of on YouTube um, if you want to see the whole thing. But like from the readings, um, they're hosted by Simon Pegg and Nick Frost being like, hey, this is what we're doing. These are all the fun things we're doing. This is the scene we're shooting today. Um, that wasn't a thing. And they kind of mm-hmm. pioneered that concept. It makes sense. I I mean, this is such a fan-based culture that these films are a part of in terms of like, I remember when Shaun of the Dead came out, I was living in Halifax and like, I only knew about it because of like the comic book store, like the people who worked in the comic book store in Halifax were obsessed with the idea of Shaun of the Dead coming out. So it really, that kind of like bring your, your potential fans, because they're not fans yet, the film hasn't come out, like bring them in early on and make it like a subculture, I think works really well for Edgar Wright films. Um, because he's such a mm-hmm. cinephile and because he's such a nerd and because he's, you know, he, he he's able to convey a sense that whether it's accurate or not, that he, he's just one of us. I was actually yeah. just thinking that he's one of us, right? Like if I if I could just do blank, I would do it. But I'm glad there's someone out there just like me who's doing yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I love the fact that the. Nick Frost has this crazy movie collection, and it's pretty much just Edgar Wright and Joe Cornish's yeah, movie collection, <laughs> like, which is like, oh boy, uh, yeah, I, yeah, you're right. And actually, when you think about it, I think Edgar Wright has maintained. I mean, I, I think his films are usually fun. I go see them, but they're not necessarily always Mm-mm. killer. I think he's maintained a lot of goodwill more as like, a, you know, an ambassador, nice like guy. almost like a. A nice Quentin Tarantino, you know, and he's got a great Twitter. He loves talking about movies and just talking about other people's movies. I guess like Steven Soderbergh, too, has that weird website where he just loves talking about other movies. He made and, he made a yeah. genre for super film nerds, which is uh, mm-hmm. admirable, I think, and has been like riding that wave quite well. I also want to say yeah. how much I enjoy the amount of paperwork that occurs in this film. Like, I love that that was also something he really worked out with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, that it's like what all these action films that we're mimicking never show is the reality, which they talk to many actually police officers uh, in interviews to do this film, just like how 80% of your day is actually sitting at a desk filling out incident reports and how you would never mm. see that in Bad Boys 2. That's never going to happen. But I, yes. I love that they kind of make that that gentle little like winky winky um and this was filmed sure, in his hometown got... right in wells sure. destroyed his hometown I trust you mm-hmm. 
I know that there's a lot of, um, we talked a little bit about the influence, but the other influence I see on this small town village sense is uh, a TV show called League of Gentlemen, which... Oh, man, yeah, that shows something. Yeah, there's that, that idea of keeping the outsiders out and everything prim and proper and are you local? It's mm. a, That's a deep cut TV show that would have been on BBC in the late 90s. I see a lot of that in mm. Hot Fuzz. Yeah, I can say. And that show is like deeply oh, disturbing, especially the second, so season, the second season. That second season so rough. Uh, well, Obviously, we're just doling out the recommendations today, Alicia. This is this is something that people are going to be Apologies. like down rabbit holes for weeks. I'm sure. No, it's yeah. great. They're just going to get more references and understand where uh, Stephen Moffat came mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That's all. That's all very exciting. So when we come back, we're going to look at a movie that uh, Denzel Washington deeply regrets that he turned down, and it would have been a very interesting film with him in it. But uh, that's coming up after the break. Yeah, newspaper publisher Conrad Black. Uh, I think at the time, no longer a Canadian. No, uh, so this uh, this is one of the details okay. I love about him is he lost his Canadian citizenship because he got into a personal scuffle with Jean Chrétien uh, over him wanting to take a British title. And mm-hmm. Chrétien is like, if you take the title, you can't be Canadian anymore. And he was like, I'm out, gonna go be yeah. a lord. A very lord. crunchy, uh, like, ancient law battle between <laughs> two uh, fancy guys. But, you know, uh, you don't want to cross Chrétien in that Shawinigan handshake. So, you know, Uh, but yes, anyway, uh, Conrad Black, who at the time was in America, um, perhaps his first mistake, perhaps Lord Black would have done better elsewhere. Um, (laughs) I don't know. uh, Jamie Lee Curtis notoriously says that she gets more tables as Lady Hayden guest than she does as Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, we all know Countess Luann. She really lost it when she's no longer a contestant. uh, um, But no, anyway, who is Is that a real housewife? Yes, it is a real housewife. She it's. One of the only modern count, former countesses I know. It's uh, the only season I watched. Oh yeah, New she's York. great. Sorry, Money can't buy you class, as we learn <laughs> from Conrad Black, uh, who, uh, yeah, he was convicted in 2007 on four counts of fraud in the U.S. District Court. Quite a lot of it was thrown out, but he ended up really being nailed for obstruction of justice, which I think 
works pretty well for both of both of these movies, which are yeah. essentially obstruction of justice thrillers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, he was uh, sentenced to 42 months in prison, uh, even after a bunch of that was thrown out in appeals. Uh, yeah, so he was di- by like, you're going to have to help me with this, Becky, because this is also, you know, much like these two movies. These are films that I think when I first watched them, a lot of the business aspects, I was like, way over my head I, I was out yeah. of university and it was way over my head uh but yeah so he essentially was diverting funds for personal benefit it's the usual kind of embezzlement it's embezzlement stuff. for all intents and purposes yeah because yeah. uh, they were selling off large par- portions of their newspaper empire yeah. but they were pocketing large portions of that for themselves that they were not reporting etc yeah. et it's people income tax don't stuff. know in canada he started the national post and still writes bylines for it, I believe. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He wrote a great From prison? No, no he's, he's not he's in prison. Out. He's out. He was pardoned no. by okay, this is this Cam's gonna get into this. This oh, is where I'm it not gets a little light. You can go ahead. Ugh. Go ahead. Oh man. These are the years I was living in the US, I think. Okay. No, two thousand well, at least his upcoming. Well, he was yes, in jail in the US, US if that helps. Yes. So mm-hmm. as someone who Fair. has a lot of money, he was able to appeal and appeal and appeal mm-hmm. and appeal. And this went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Yes. The Supreme Court was like, Okay, no, you are guilty. We are going to say that you are guilty. We're gonna just give you time served. He was originally gonna be put away for like 12, 13 years, and then he ended up doing something like 42 days. Like, it's ridiculous. Uh, And then eventually, he was pardoned by Donald Trump in 2016, Mm -hmm. personally. So he's been pardoned of his charges. Uh, (laughs) But he is also Donald Trump's biographer and one of his good buddies. So... That's and also among all of this, he was deported back to Canada, interestingly. Um, he is our problem. I believe he lives on the <laughs> bridal path. Um, he, yeah, it's it's kind of a strange situation, but you, you get it. And, and it's kind of an interesting thing, too, which will lead into the movies that we're talking about. And I think quite a lot of the financial crash of 2007 is that it is a rich person who reaches the level of kind of richness that capitalism can get you but wants more rich. <laughs> like, yeah. I need more money. Cause, and the truth is, what both of these movies show is, like, to exist beyond that makes you a criminal. It, and, yeah. and some of these movies show it makes you evil. Like, that, yeah. that is the difference. You can be a rich person, but the difference between being a rich person and being evil is just never being satisfied with what you have. And making that leap into sociopathy where mm-hmm. you genuinely just don't care about other people and that you are literally having them murdered, which yeah. takes us into our first film. So the question here is, what if the writer of the Bourne series of films was to make a prestige white-collar crime thriller. What would it have? Would it have time jumps and explosions and frantic conspiracy spewing? Because that's happening. But how do you really get the word prestige in there? Well, you're going to cast a bunch of people who look fantastic at black tie award shows like George Clooney and, of course, our show favorite Tilda Swinton. Tilda won the Best Supporting Actress for her role. And in her Oscar acceptance speech, she has one of the best opening lines I think I've ever heard. I have an American agent who is the spitting image of this really truly the same shape head and it has to be said the buttocks it is quite the contrast from the humorless and morally corrupt character that she plays in michael clayton also sweaty gerard depardieu levels of sweaty Mm -hmm. (laughs) one of the sweatiest on-screen characters i think introduced as sweaty uh, yes. <laughs> introduced as completely having destroyed her shirt uh, and, and a great way to show 
all these characters are introduced with a mystery, essentially. So Tom Wilkinson, you're like, why is this guy raving like a maniac? Uh, George Clooney, why did his car blow up? <laughs> and Tilda it's Swinton, the time jumps. why yeah, yeah. is she the sweatiest freaking out woman in a bathroom stall? <laughs> because she's the devil incarnate. Yeah, yeah. Becca De Mornay in the bathroom stall or oh, Tilda Swinton in geez. the bathroom stall? What's it's, the better bathroom freakout? <laughs> I mean, it's a Freddy That's... versus Jason situation I'd love to see. <laughs> Uh, an alien versus yeah, predator. Yeah. Whoever wins, we yeah. lose. <laughs> okay, so what's Michael Clayton about, guys? Obviously, Michael Clayton, but not really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Michael Clayton is essentially, uh, it's a thriller, as you say, about a fixer. Uh, a fixer who works for a law firm. Uh, the law firm has been funded for a long time by essentially Monsanto, uh, a massive agrochemicals corporation who's in the middle of a decades-long lawsuit that has been funding their books. He gets drawn into all of it because uh, Tom Wilkinson, who plays one of the high-end partners, uh, has a mental breakdown in a deposition hearing, uh, strips naked, and declares his love <laughs> for one of the plaintiffs. Uh Played by Merritt Yeah, played Weaver, by Merritt Weaver. Amazing. Everybody in this movie is a great actor. Uh, yeah. And it ends up kind of being this weird uh, story of Tom Wilkinson, uh, of Merritt Weaver, who weirdly sees this declaration and partially believes what he's saying, of George Clooney, who's the fixer, who is brought in to, to fix this problem, and of Tilda Swinton, who is a kind of mid-level executive of this uh, agrochemical company who has access to more evil means and decides to head down a dark path uh, as she's freaking out that this is going to... They're very close to settling this lawsuit, and she will do essentially anything to uh, to finish it. It's a lawsuit about chemicals that ended up um, killing people. Yes. Merritt Weaver's family die of cancer. Um, it's it's yeah. kind of an Aaron Brockovich situation. I, I think it's actually... like Again, it's a weird movie where you're kind of just given hints but i think the yeah. chemicals made her mother sick and her mother committed suicide i believe but her brother did die right? yeah From maybe cancer? so yeah. but there's a note i know that her mother okay. left so uh that's yeah it's right, this yeah. weird but i mean no you're i mean this is a movie that again <laughs> everything is very uh touched upon very uh like barely known you're kind of you're filling in a lot of the blanks uh, George Clooney is really the main character. He's the titular Michael Clayton. You're finding out that he's in a massive amount of debt to the mafia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're finding out that, I mean, we don't even know that it's a mafia. It's to somebody who's scary. You only ever see their fixer. It's kind of two guys talking fixer Which to fixer. Which he <laughs> also is fixing things for his brother in his personal life as yes, well. Because yeah, his he, brother yeah. is a recovering addict. He has all these uh, real strange... It's funny that the fixer the, or the... Fixer he deals with of the mafia is Bill Raymond, who is the weird mm-hmm. guy from My New Gun, uh, a <laughs> returner. Uh, but yeah, so it's it's all these different stories. As you uh, teased, Becky, it's also the strange story of Michael Clayton trying to bond with his son over this uh, book series slash card game that uh, Tony Gilroy, director, writer-director, <laughs> was obsessed with. Uh, because that's how he bonded with his own son, uh, and that ends up over like Magic: The Gathering or like World of yeah. Warcraft. Uh, yeah, or? he said like book children's books and like reading oh, okay. YA novels and stuff. So he ended up writing this YA novel and building the card game. Apparently, it was a functional card game, uh, <laughs> and had had the books like illustrated yeah, and stuff like that. Like got an illustrator, and that becomes a key because the kid weirdly connects with Tom Wilkinson, who's who's having you know a. a sort of schizo adjacent breakdown and and really feels it all. Yeah, he's taken he's stopped taking his medication mm-hmm. um purposely. Yeah. 
because he but it's because essentially Tom Wilkinson sees the evil that they're doing. He is trying he is yeah. the whistleblower from the inside. Um yeah. and it's it eventually becomes a yeah, a, he's killed and uh Clooney slowly realizing just how evil everything is going on around him and trying to Has. having to decide whether he the man who seemingly can truly fix everything uh is going to fix this or is going to like let it burn this is very much a um a writer's movie mm. and it's something mm-hmm. that a number of uh writers since screen screenwriters have cited as being like a big inspiration point or their favorite screenplay yeah. ever including Vanessa Taylor who wrote The Shape of Water and I thought I was super original in my love of Michael Clayton although obviously it's a great script but I was on a panel recently with like 10 writers and they were going down the line saying what inspired you and three people said Michael Clayton I was like oh whatever it's impressive oh totally and I mean it's it's worth saying that Tony Gilroy is a part of a strange writing dynasty. His father, Frank Gilroy, mm-hmm. won the Pulitzer Prize and Tony Awards for uh, the subject was Roses, uh, the film adaptation of which is currently on Hollywood Suite. Uh, his brother, Dan Gilroy, wrote Nightcrawler. Jeez. Uh, so they got other... some dark things going on in their family <laughs> yeah. there with American yeah. capitalism. That's incredible. And, and I think his other brother, John, edited this. Yeah, he edited the movie. He's quite a big editor. And actually, his oh, son man. is one of the actors. He's the guy at the coffee shop that helps George wow. Clooney. So uh, there's, yeah, it's a it's a very unusual thing. And I mean, it's a script that I think everybody loved. Uh, it's funny. It's one of, it's Sidney Pollack's second last film. And apparently he gave the script wanting Pollack to act oh. in it. And Sidney Pollack's like, I'm directing this baby. And he's like, no. I am. He's like, no, you know, this you know is who mine. I am, Sidney Pollack. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, and he's obviously casting Sidney Pollack because Sidney Pollack's this kind of icon of I, I paranoid thrillers. I think Pollack ended up producing it in some fashion as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. Actually, it's a crazy. I, you know what? I think the script went around because it's like Pollack, Spielberg, like the, every producer and is a, they're all producers. Oh, so yeah, that's yeah. crazy. So and Tony Gilroy had been around forever working mm-hmm. on screen stuff, and actually, his work on The Devil's Advocate is what made him get mm-hmm. the idea for this because he was studying a bunch of law offices, mm-hmm. and there was all these inner sanctums, and he. He was like, what's going on in there? Like, what, what he evil also, are they plotting? He also wrote, um, in 1982, he wrote The Cutting Edge. Yes, his first The film. romantic ice dancing, believe, uh, film. Yeah, he actually, I think, really starts in kind of a, a women's film angle. Because it's that, <laughs> and then a TV movie, and then Dolores Claiborne, which is kind of famously yeah. a great look at spousal abuse. Yeah. And now he's worked on Rogue One. Yeah. He's, he's in the Star Wars and, uh, uh, franchise. And he's actually the showrunner of, uh, to, to get crunchy into Star Wars, he's the showrunner of the Cassian Andor series, which is coming out on These Disney+. These are words Plus. coming out of your mouth I do not uh, recognize. You, may, oh, you yeah, might remember it's uh, Diego Luna's character. He really wanted to touch Jabba. Uh, yeah, yeah, touch yeah, Jabba. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yes, he is getting a spinoff series, which Tony <laughs> Gilroy is writing. Oh, man. I have to say that... I did not look forward to watching this film at all. It just is not a subject matter that appeals to me. And I think it because it's a relatively new film, like so different talking about 2007 than talking about 1978. Yeah. I was just like, oh, okay, I'll leave Michael Clayton to last. Mm-hmm. And wow, is it a power. Yeah, yeah so I, good. I uh, can't stop thinking about it. I can't stop thinking about Tilda Swinton. Um, she's never been nominated since. Yeah. But this is... 
this is how could she not win the Academy Award for this? I've never that that role. She is supremely evil, but believable. It's uh, empathetic. Um, That's the thing. It's like the this is the difference between this and say perfume. Yeah. Is like either you you get why she's making the choices she's making, even though she's pure. She's turning evil, yeah, and she gets yeah. and then she gets nailed at the end, and then you get that satisfaction. And, oh, that yeah. climax scene! My God, it's, oh. it's also one that's like. Uh, you know, it, it probably it's not quite Hannibal Lecter, but it's probably up there. Right? I don't think yeah. she's in that much of the movie. No, she's no. probably in, you know, 25. Yeah, minutes totally. So she uses, and it's funny because she is such an uncertain character. She is not when mm-hmm. we say she's like pure evil. She's pure evil because she's so uh, wishy washy about human lives, <laughs> which is uh, crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting. It comes right at the same time as uh, Julia, which is a very underseen movie that she's so amazing in where she kidnaps a child. Mm-hmm. It is fascinating. She's never been nominated before or since. Uh, yeah, but it's such a great role. You guys are absolutely right. And I, I think yeah. this is her ascendancy. Like I, I understand why then she gets plucked by Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. And she, she gets popularized, I think, by this sure. film and this Academy Award win. Whereas when we talked about her in '92, she's very avant-garde. She's very indie. Well, film. and when Hollywood um, got her, they tried to turn her into an oddity. So she did Constantine, where she played an angel, like a very androgynous yeah. angel, and, and, Narnia. and Narnia, where she's the yeah. witch, which was also supposed Narnia. to be Michelle Pfeiffer, who, who turned it down. But yeah, she becomes this like, oh, she's weird looking, so we're going to put her in weird looking roles. She's an alien, and she's an alien in this, yeah. but it's the best kind yeah. of alien where you're just like. Like she's an alien because it's so hard. It, she is empathetic, I guess, but at the same time, I'm like, I can't imagine ordering the deaths of people that you know, mm-hmm. but then also being okay with potentially an entire state of farms and agriculture having people develop cancer and dying and all you do is get a well, tax write-off. Well, it's interesting because you mentioned Aaron Brockovich earlier and this was like something yeah. that was very much in the early 2000s because like in the late 90s, early 2000s, there was like a big sweeping EPA mm-hmm. take on all that kind we of stuff. We learned about this stuff, yeah. that this was exactly. happening all the time. But there, if you go back to the 70s, which this is very much a 70s style thriller, like, and mm-hmm. there's everyone makes mm-hmm. uh, comparisons to Parallax View, there's a Canadian mm-hmm. movie called One Man from 1977, which I love and I wish more people had seen oh. that interestingly stars Len Carreyou and Jane Jane Eastwood people we talked about in our pre, in our previous sure. episode Sweeney Todd himself exactly and <laughs> this one is actually about a TV reporter that discovers that this uh, business is actually killing people in that same kind of electricity way and they just try to destroy him and it is hmm. an awesome hmm. movie it's directed by Robin Spry I can't recommend it enough I just got to get I'll that one to my little Canadian film down. Yeah, it's never heard on of it. the National Film Board so it's available for oh. free so you can watch it there it's we great we are a wow. great country for that Sorry, alone. America. We, <laughs> we get this one. Um, Aren't we, though? But yeah, but it's just, it, it really does have that, like, meat and juice and feel of, like, a true 70s thriller. Yeah. And we don't make movies like that anymore. In fact, no. this film has been referenced as being the last movie for adults ever produced by mm. Hollywood. <laughs> oh. I mean, I like to think that there's more than that. I also think that this was a time where 70s film was becoming more and more respected. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a thing I feel like I, I saw throughout my film school career where it it shifted from like a, an earlier kind of classic film to now it's like, why don't people respect the 70s? Yeah, I feel like <laughs> 70s film in particular, like films like Three Days in the Condor and all those political mm-hmm. thrillers, and Parallax View is a great example from 74. Sure. It's like by 2007, it was kind of the point where it's like, okay, now the 70s are an era of classic film. Because when you're yeah. too close to a decade, like, you know, in the 90s, they weren't thinking 70s films were classics because it was only 20 years mm-hmm. ago. In the same way that arguably in 2020, we're not looking at like 1999 and going, 
Beau Travail is a classic film. Yeah. Um, yeah. It takes like 30, it's that 30 year mark, I yeah. feel like, that that we're comfortable with then saying, well, this is now officially able to be on Turner Classic Movies. Totally. I'm so glad we, you brought up Beau Travail because that's the movie that I yell about the most that people need to yeah. see. So thank you. I think you're by welcome. the time you're hearing this, it will be on Hollywood Suite if yes. you're so interested. Indeed. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. And we find it all the time with Hollywood Suite where I can often be like, this movie is 25 years old. And people are like, no, no, shut up, shut up. No, I saw <laughs> but, this in um, high school and I'm not old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but Michael Clayton, I also want to say like as much as this has those 70s feels, this is a bizarre film yeah this is a film that is so subtle yeah and so like i'm i can i think for sure confidently say i did not get this like i i watched it and enjoyed it but there's no way i got it when Mm. i first saw it and and there's such weird things where like i mean the whole thing is like that he he manages to survive this just because he's like sees some horses (laughs) <laughs> and like he has like a moment with a horse. I still don't understand that, and I don't want you to explain it to me. I'm no, there, I mean there's not really an explanation. And Why there's a fascinating, is he out in that field with the horse? So there's a there's a fascinating thing where they CGI'd in in Tom Wilkinson's apartment a photo of a horse oh. as, as a concession <laughs> to some producer, I think, to be like. <laughs> This is why he's looking at a horse. Oh my god! Because he he thought of the horse, but that still is a bar- like a fairly mystical. It's like I mean, an there's Ang a lot Lee of moment. It's, yeah, it's there's so a bizarre. lot of like mystical Ang Lee, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of it chooses to dig into a lot of moments that are not necessary. Like like his relationship with his brother. Like yeah. that's such a nice thing where like when he is actually super beaten down, and and this brother he's essentially mocked. Because not not even because he's an addict or he has all mental health issues, it's just because he's like weak. Like he tells his son, like you'll never be like that because you're weak. But then he is the strong one when he Michael Clayton saves is his ass. in yeah in trouble uh, in the same way he is. It's just like Michael Clayton's been faking. But I mean, the moment with Dennis O'Hare, we we talked a bit about where it's like. You don't need that scene. That scene is not a necessary scene at yeah, all. Yeah, it's a MacGuffin. But it's great. It's, it's, yeah. There's multiple MacGuffins, like the Hitchcockian oh, yeah. <laughs> um, notion of a MacGuffin, especially in the beginning of the film, and especially because it, it is not chronological in its editing, that um, mm. I do, usually a MacGuffin pisses me off to no end, and I thought that they were essential to this film. This film, like, I, I was trying to think of um, something that makes it really unusual, and the end credits... I've never seen a film do end credits like that, where they're not really end credits, yet there's text. Um, So you have to sit in it. The film's continuing, and it's It's like The Graduate, you know, where they Similar, yeah, similar. You're just supposed to be watching his face (laughs) and be like, "Eh, what is is the final note? And I mean, yeah, the ending is also, you barely, you're kind of like, okay, well, he did this, but he's also- Screwed now. Well, he's fleeing, too. They tell him, mm-hmm. don't go far, the FBI and he gets do, in a, yeah. a yeah. car and drives away. So it's like, oh, yeah. It's a, so it's a very, I mean, there's Which so much. Which we should in, say that the director is the is the cab driver. That's Tony Gilroy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, who he pays that. $50 to. That's his, that's his director cameo. I mean, he doesn't have a shirtless photo on Google, but he is a very handsome man. Uh, <laughs> I'm looking him up but, right now. Yeah. Oh, uh, no, he's a he could be a Clooney. But yeah, like, as you say, it's a, it's a very interesting role, and it's, a role that was offered to Denzel Washington, as you said before, he turned it down because I don't think he got it. And he says he regrets it terribly. Because, yeah. Well, can you yeah. imagine? Like, then the movie dynamic also shifts if it becomes a black actor, right? Like, that's a very that becomes oh, a very sure. different mm-hmm. commentary. As the fixer, as someone who doesn't have their name on the partnership but was there yeah. from yeah. the beginning, that would have so different why politics. has yeah? Why has he been doing this job for thirteen years and he's not a partner? Well, is race part of that? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, what's but, the good yeah. point? Maybe it makes it a slightly better movie. And I also think uh, I just love Denzel, so I'm open. I'm always open for more Denzel. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Bring exactly. Him on. Yeah. Uh, it's a uh, 
it's also an interesting movie because I think it really changes the view of George Clooney. Yeah. You see George Clooney yes. get a, like up in the air is essentially Michael Clayton. He's yeah. playing like I guess there was I'm like was there before and before I guess it's Ocean's Eleven and, and maybe Syriana. to an extent Syria Syriana's before this isn't it You're the only person that's seen Syriana Am I okay <laughs> Syriana 2006 I'm looking it up I uh, think so I don't yeah. even know uh, I, but, I'm but looking like, it up and then accidentally hit um, Syria the Wikipedia <laughs> I got 2005 Listen, he, he was Oscar um, nominated yeah. but uh, well and it's the same I think it's the same um, cinematographer for Michael Clayton and Syriana I think there's mm. a bunch of crossover. But I just feel like from here on out, he has the, the role where he is the perfect man who can do anything kind of, you know, uh, yeah. and, uh, and and quite often it's like it is that guy sweating, you know, yeah. it's the guy who has up until now, you know, been the man in the Nespresso ads. But now <laughs> uh, his spaceship blows up or the monuments can't move, you know, or he's visiting uh, Disneyland. Uh, he lives in Tomorrowland. <laughs> he right. He has some. Almost Hamlet esque monologues that are mm. so good in this film. At one point, I, might, I wrote it down and I can't remember the exact part, but he refers to this whole situation as having a patina of shit. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> so good. I wrote it down because I'm like, use that, Alicia. Use yeah. that in a, yeah. in a moment where you need to be authoritative. <laughs> and I mean, it's. Also great monologues every Tom Wilkinson. Oh, Tom Wilkinson, so amazing! Good. As much as you know, Tilda. This is Tilda Swinton's film, despite only being in it for like twenty odd minutes. Tom Wilkinson, this performance is powerhouse. He is, I mean, he's good in everything he does. Well, the thing is, it doesn't feel like there's any fat in this movie either. Like everybody who's, everything that's there needs to be there for some reason. Even if you don't get it. It's a felt film, you're Um, right. And because there is so much like forward drive to it, like even that Dennis Mm. O'Hare scene, which God, I love Dennis O'Hare and watching him in that. And he was mostly a theater actor at that time. Mm -hmm. American Horror Story hadn't really taken him along for the ride yet. It's still like that scene itself was an Oscar clip. Like every single oh, yeah. scene yeah. feels like an Oscar clip, you know? It's that sort of intensity and height. Yeah, and it's worth saying like as much as we're saying like Tony Gilroy the writer and he he's not uh, much of a director. He's only directed uh, 3 4 features, I think. It is also a very well-directed film yeah. because some of these sequences like I probably forgot most of the plot of Michael Clayton, I'll be honest, but I will never forget the car exploding while he's looking at the horses. I will never forget the extremely disturbing murder of Tom Wilkinson, which is so businesslike. Yeah. And and it's just the terrifying thing where like, oh yeah, somebody can murder you and make it look like nothing very easily. It's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's it's nothing. Uh, yeah, so there's there are these sequences that are so memorable. And Tilda Swinton sweating, honestly. I, <laughs> I remember that too, her being so sweaty. Uh, yeah, so it's like, it is also a very well-directed movie. And I'm kind of like, man, I want Tony Gilroy to direct more. Actually, I want another too. one of these. Uh, well, that mm. having been said, let's talk about prestigious directors who love actors and unfortunately will not be making any more films because you hear about famous film folks uh, having less than stellar final film credits. So you can think like Peter Sellers and Yellowface in 1980s, the fiendish plot of Dr. Fu Manchu or don't. It's a low point. Yeah, Gene Kelly in the one-two punch of Xanadu and Viva Knievel. Xanadu is a high point. Yeah, (laughs) Viva Knievel. We'll go with that. And uh, although it's a lot of fun, it's not exactly a dignified send-off for Joan Crawford in Trog. But our final film of this season of the podcast was also the final film for Sidney Lumet. And I think it's fitting that we end our season as we began it. 
Before the Devil Knows You're Dead is his final film, even though it was not intended to be. He had another one in pre-production. I really like this movie, and there's a lot of really heartbreaking stuff watching this movie in 2020. So although I do recommend people watch it, that's the caveat of, like, there's some stuff in here now that is very heartbreaking, aside Mm -hmm. from the fact it's a very difficult film. Well, just coming back to your talking about actors that have, you know, kind of had a crestfallen end to their careers. You know, that syndrome definitely happens with a lot of directors, directors we've even talked about um, on this podcast and in the TV show. Like if you just look at Charlie Chaplin making Countess from Hong Kong in 1967, Hitchcock's final film, uh, Mm -hmm. Family Plot, Mm -hmm. which is... I think it's cute. Certainly not what you would expect. It's weird. Yeah, from like <laughs> this weird comedy. Yeah. Um, or something like Billy Wilder and Buddy Buddy in 81, Cassavetes and Big Trouble. You know, and for a long time, people said this of Stanley Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut, which we have completely mm. moved away from. Eyes Wide Shut as a masterpiece. But God, this is so far from this the scenario with Sidney Lumet and Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Um, I had never seen this film until the podcast. This is quite the end of his career. For those mm-hmm. of our listeners, I mean, hopefully you listened to our first episode of the podcast where we talk about The Wiz, which was directed <laughs> by Sidney Lumet. Uh, that is not typical no. of his filmography, The Wiz. Uh, this is someone that would be known for Dog Day Afternoon, Network, Serpico. 12 um, Angry Men. He created the courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. So yeah, his his 1957 directorial debut is 12 Angry Men, <laughs> yeah. which is quite impressive. He directed Murder on the Orient Express. Um, he, Where he hung out with Albert Finney, who's also yeah. in this film. <laughs> yeah, and like for, you know, directors like Scorsese, when Sidney Lumet died, I believe he dies in 2012, you know, they really paid homage to him as as the chronicler of New York as well. As much as we think of Scorsese doing that, uh, he really gave that tribute to, to Lumet. And of course, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, it takes place partially in New York City, but also in the suburb of Westchester, which is where Michael Clayton also partially takes place. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on in Westchester, except there's a lot of rich people Evil. doing Evil. a lot of bad things. Um, God, this film blew me away. I have a hard time getting it out of my system. I want it out of my system because <laughs> it is very well, very well made, very taut, very thrilling, but it's so depressing. That being said, I want everyone to see it. I don't want it's stunning. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. just the title itself before the devil knows you're dead is a wonderful title for a film. Uh, and most famously, it stars um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke and um, Albert Finney, as you already mentioned, Becky, who's incredible in this. And it's it's a white-collar crime drama about embezzlement. It's, it's about when you do one wrong thing and then everything falls apart. Like, it's never ending with how many things go wrong in this film it's an early role for michael shannon who is crazy in this film yeah. he's so good that they, yeah. he didn't get that this movie did not get oscar nominated for much if anything is just shocking to me especially the yeah. fact that they had johnny depp nominated for best actor as sweeney todd and you did not nominate philip seymour hoffman or ethan hawk for this is wild to me i don't have a lot of background on this but my my sense is there was a very botched release schedule on this mm. film i remember it coming out in Toronto and I remember not being able to see it and I do wonder if that affected Academy nominations and and ultimately voters as well I'm not sure but um, it is a film that in 2020 if you go back and look at respected film critics this film was 
in, if not mm-hmm. their number one film in many cases, yeah. always in their top 10 for 2007. Yeah. So it, I think it just took some time to kind of simmer. It has a stunning score by Carter Burwell for our listeners who are fans of Carter Burwell. Um, and if you're talking about, you know, performances from Philip Seymour Hoffman, it's it's this interesting scenario where you have an embarrassment of riches. Like, which one do you pick? It's Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, and, but that being said, there is an argument, I would say, that this could be his greatest performance. I do always want to give him credit for the thing people forget of, he's the bad guy in Mission Impossible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is a pretty <laughs> good... Right. What year is Capote? Uh, Capote is actually the year before, too. 2005. So, and he was nominated for that. So this mm, yeah. is Philip Seymour Hoffman as he works for, is it like, I don't know what company he works for. It's like for, a, a bank? property management Pro- yeah, bank or something. Because there's something. some aspects of like... Uh, Ethan Hawke is a is like a super of a building right within right. the company so yeah, there's right. got to be something related to real estate and, and ultimately it doesn't matter he's been embezzling um, funds from the company for years to fund his lifestyle and also his heroin addiction he yeah. his wife is um, uh, Marissa Tomei who is having an affair with his brother played by Ethan Hawke Ethan Hawke needs money because he's divorced and needs um, child support and spousal support and And tuition. he's also made the choice in this like series of bad choices that his daughter needs to go to the most expensive the private school. school which he yes. has to pay for and then who also and she also does not understand what money is so she keeps asking for more and more mm-hmm. stuff and that leads to a heartbreaking moment later on The scene where she wants to go on a field trip to the Lion King and needs a hundred <laughs> $30 and he can't give it to her and she calls him I can't remember if she calls him a piece of shit which is something that her mother has called him while she's in the apartment is heartbreaking yeah. but uh, they decide to because they both need money these two brothers to rob their parents jewelry store in Westchester that's a suburban mall a jewelry store and it all goes wrong and they in- inadvertently kill their mother and then have to hide the fact that they are actually the people behind this crime it is shocking um only Sinulmat could do this this is a mile a minute film and much like Michael Clayton not only does it take place in Westchester but it is uh non-chronological in its editing so you're always trying to piece together the film like a puzzle um and it's each each character kind of gets their own segment where you get to see what they were doing um when this robbery it's got that took place Rashomani sort of element to mm-hmm. it yeah it mm-hmm. is that's a good point it is it's a little Rashomani um that's a new Term that we just coined, <laughs> um, but and... it is in the way like that it goes back to the same scenes, mm-hmm. but you understand them from different angles. Yes. Um, what's interesting is they all the whole family goes to see um, Ethan Hawke's daughter's school play, which is King Lear, because which... that's how fancy this school is that yes. like ten year olds are doing King Lear. Yeah. But in terms of that, you know, the the father and King Lear's father daughter, but the the father son relationship and how that's really at the crux of what this film is, is very King Leary. Mm-hmm. Um, it is also got one of the meanest white collar drug dealers I've ever encountered on film. <laughs> He's a pretty interesting character, but seeing Philip Seymour Hoffman's character addicted to heroin, I think is kind of what we were alluding to yeah. describing this film earlier, where this is a very hard film to watch because of the tragedy in in Philip Seymour Hoffman's death um, and overdose. It's Leonardo Cimino's final film for our listeners who don't know who that is. (laughs) Uh, And he is good in this. But Albert Finney... 
is unbelievable. This is, if you love Miller's Crossing, if you love that Coen Brothers movie, Mm. this is a very similar thing where he's simultaneously playing the hero and the villain, and it's all like this peanut buttery chocolate Mm -hmm. swirl of morality. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. There's such an unexpected body count to this film. I did not, again, much like Michael Clayton, I was like, oh, I don't really, I want to watch The Wiz again or Sergeant Peppers. (laughs) I don't want to watch this. And then was, obviously my perceptions of what I want to watch are completely wrong. You got Uh, hairspray. You got hairspray, Alicia. Yeah, I was like learning my lesson of like those films because my partner, Brendan, loves this film and I I would never be like, yeah, it's Friday night. I'm feeling like, let's watch Before the Devil devil Knows knows You're Dead. (laughs) Not quite that. But I want to say it's it's a must see. Like we talked about with Michael Clayton, it's so many good actors and Sidney Lumet, purposefully for the most part filled it with theater actors Mm -hmm. many of whom who would go on like michael shannon to be bigger (laughs) amy ryan this is the same year as gone baby gone Mm -hmm. but it's she plays uh, ethan hawk's ex-wife with that uh, having been said i actually want to hit some of the theater connections of this sure. because it was rehearsed for two weeks like a play mm-hmm. start to finish they had they built that. them like a black box set so that they knew exactly because it's not i mean they're also shooting out of chronology yeah. too and that's a way of working that just doesn't happen in hollywood and it's something that top-notch actors like philip seymour hoffman who loved to act can really sink their teeth into two weeks six uh, 12 to six every day you know, we ran through the whole film on its feet at the end of the two weeks. And it was a great experience because anyone in the film, you really did have a good, strong, yeah, a good, strong base to work with. So you were able to move quicker. Very few takes. He really sets up quick. And so I think that's why the highs and the lows are hit so beautifully in this because they know where they are in space. When this script was offered to um, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke, it was originally Philip Seymour Hoffman and then Ethan Hawke got involved. Um, Sidney Lumet asked them, which role do you guys want to play? And it was Mm -hmm. almost like a true Westian where like it was possible for them to switch roles every single Mm -hmm. night because either of them could have played either of these parts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Ethan Hawke apparently led on that. He wanted to play. uh, Sidney Lumet was very shocked that he wanted to play the loser. Uh, but, oh, it works perfectly. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, uh, I know there's a, I mean, it could be apocryphal, but there is a story that, so Marissa Tomei in this film is nude mm-hmm. most of the film. Yeah, yeah uh, quite a lot of it. I will say it's impressive. She looks great. She looks <laughs> yes, yeah, stunning, stunningly beautiful woman. She, yeah, it's like, yeah, like Renaissance painting. It's, it's. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna. I, I'm gonna shut up about that particular angle. But to make her comfortable, because she she was actually close friends with Ethan Hawke and Philip Seymour Hoffman, who and she has sex scenes with both. Um, to make her comfortable, Ethan Hawke demanded that the crew all strip down naked while filming those scenes, so that so that it was like an equality thing. And I think that that is um, coming to your point, Becky, about this being so theater based. Like those kinds mm-hmm. of tactics are unusual in studio films, and uh, but obviously work really well. So weirdly, the apocryphal part of your story is that they were close friends because they weren't. They knew oh. each other. They were all New York people who mm. ran in the same circles, who knew each other, who professionally had wanted to work together for mm. a long time, um, especially Ethan Hawke and um, Marissa Tomei wanted to work together, mm-hmm. um, but they didn't really know each other particularly well. Philip Seymour Hoffman and Marissa Tomei were closer. Um, and when they, the first day of rehearsal was, because it's the opening of the movie, that sex scene where he <laughs> is having sex with her very graphically yeah. um, and very passionately. We, we shall say. Um, and she's actually the one who took the lead on that in the rehearsal and said, okay, Phil, hop on. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and uh, off they went. There's <laughs> a good Sidney Lumet thing because he's like, when I wrote the script, he's like, it can be very hard to negotiate that level of nudity and sex. 
And he's like, one thing that is very hard is like, if you don't make it clear, then you can get into a bit of a fight or somebody gets bashful. Mm-hmm. And so he's like, the script was nude, nude, you're naked. It's nude. <laughs> and like, the sex is wild. Uh, so, yeah. But he said he was quite ta- he, he figured there would still be a level of negotiation and discomfort. But he's like, obviously, Marissa really read the script. She's a uh, professional. I, I really oh, yeah. love her. Also, a very fascinating Sidney Lumet thing I love is Marissa Tomei was somebody he wanted to work with for a long time because he tells this story of... Of he super loves my cousin Vinny, number one, which is great. <laughs> As he should, because uh, it's great. Yes. It's basically a comedy and, Sydney Lament yeah, film. <laughs> yeah. And number two, like, you had to keep in mind that my cousin Vinny is like the early 90s. So Sydney Lumet was a he'd been a director uh, for most of his life, a great director, new actors. And he said only twice in his life. He's like, sometimes you see a performance and you're like, wow, they got that. They found that person. They got a non-actor. They are that person. And he said only twice in his life has he ever been tricked. And and one was Tim Robbins in Bull Durham. He thought he was really that guy. And one was Marissa Tomei. And he's like, he's like, he shook her hand at the Oscars and was like, well, wait, you're not her. You're not Mona Lisa. You, you do have a yeah, Long Island accent. <laughs> yeah. So he said that from then on, he's like, God, I got to get Marissa Tomei in a movie. She's the greatest actress of um, all time. I also love the way there's a great um, story that Ethan Hawke tells um, posthumously of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's death, unfortunately. I think he was telling it in like 2015 or 16, where he says that they he would watch the dailies with Sidney Lumet and Sidney Lumet would just go on and on about Philip Seymour Hoffman being like, he's the next Brando. Like, I've never seen mm-hmm. acting like that since yeah. Brando or the intensity. And then at the premiere, he was talking to Philip Seymour and he would get like a little, you know, jumped up about that, about like, well, what about me? And when he talked to Philip Seymour Hoffman, Philip Seymour Hoffman was like, did he bring up Brando? He's like, yeah. He's like, he says the same thing about you. Uh, <laughs> he was playing them against each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and, and in all the interviews, he's, uh, again, like, considering Marissa Tomei has quite a smaller part, he's very into, and I mean, I think also, it sounds like she is very uh, in the process he uses. Because like you say, part of what everyone says, and it's funny because Albert Finney said it was weirdly exactly the same in 1970-whatever on Orient Express. You practice and you practice and you practice, and it's partially so Sidney Lumet can fly through filming like a maniac. (laughs) Like it's just set up, set up, set up. You're done, you're done, you're done. Sidney Lumet said that Marissa Tomei took him aback because he's like, she could pull out something different mm. and he would be like, God damn it, another take. Because <laughs> he's like, every time I did another take, Marissa Tomei did something good and different and I was like, Stop well, you throwing me it's off, lunch. Tomei. It's lunch. Like, yeah, how do you have nine different ways to interpret this scene? And he says his favorite scene is one that is very subtle, which is Philip Seymour Hoffman and Marissa Tomei together in the car oh, and yeah. he kind of breaks down and he says yeah. that that's that's the best acting he has ever been involved with as a director. That is uh, an incredible scene. More movies with men talking about their feelings openly, please. Mm. Because, man, that that and him and <laughs> Albert their, Finney. Their daddy issues, specifically. Yeah. More well, him and Albert Finney sitting down and talking where Albert Finney tries to apologize to him is just like, oh, my God. Yeah. That one is, that's But then rough. ends up slapping him in the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there's some issues yeah. there. Um, yeah. I do want to bring us back into the script because Sidney Lumet also altered the script. It was a script mm-hmm. by Kelly Masterson, and it was sold. And Sidney Lumet got a hold of it. He changed it. He made them brothers. And this is a story which I think is, it's a little sad, but apparently he was referring to Kelly Masterson as she while he was on the yeah. Jenga trail repeatedly. And Kelly Masterson is it's male and identifies yeah. as he and uh, had to write him a letter being like, I met you on set. And so that's a bit like, oh man, oh man. Keeping in mind that he was, and this is not an excuse for misgendering, but <laughs> 82 years old directing yeah. before the I mean, yeah. Show. This is also a bit rich for misgendering because this is just a guy, a guy who looks like a guy. <laughs> But uh, Kelly Masters is kind of a strange guy. He's a playwright and uh, was almost a monk. 
and his other big credit is uh, the English uh, script for uh, Snowpiercer. Okay. <laughs> Which you would never expect. He worked with Bong Joon-ho. Again, you're like, you kind of try to find the threads of this movie and you're like, well, ah. Bong Joon-ho, it's interesting because the way we talked about the host and all of Bong Joon-ho's films, including Parasite, like diso- the disillusion and dysfunctional family is always mm-hmm. at the heart. That is definitely what this film is. Like, I, I see yeah. maybe, like, I don't know what the time period is if, if Bong Joon-ho saw Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Oh, it was yeah. like, I need someone to... It is to, possible. Yeah, I could see this really appealing to his sensibility of stories and filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I do want to just finish this up by saying that I love the fact that we're ending with Sidney Lumet because he is a man who made 44 features in 50 years. He invented entirely new genres. And um, one of the things I have loved so much about this show and about doing this season and this podcast with you guys um, is that I've discovered whole new things I did not know existed. And I'm hoping that our listeners have found the same thing. So I want to ask you guys, Cam and Alicia, what film was like the biggest surprise for you guys or what's the one that like you really think is the takeaway of this for you guys? Oh, man. Um, we watched I 46 mean, movies. So. Yeah. Well, uh, I, you know what? I, I It's going to maybe be a jaw-dropping shocker, but I think that the biggest surprise for me was 1492 Conquest of Paradise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what well, was the surprise not, that you survived it? No, I, I think that I figured that the the Columbus films of that era would have let Columbus way off the hook for his indigenous genocide. And I think that the fact that people were that tuned into it back then really surprised me. I also think it was famously a bad, was considered famously a terrible movie. And I don't think it's that terrible. I think mm-hmm. if you're a Ridley Scott fan why the hell are you not watching this movie it's, it fits all the other ones of his historical epics i think it's our uh, most funny episode i mean i was very it. interested to learn so much but uh yeah I, I mean the movies i like in this that i would recommend you run out and see are the ones that i already recommend to everybody i know uh which is the long day closes i think is is one of my favorite movies of all time and also i really you know what revisiting wreck really holds up yeah, it's yeah. really one of the scariest horror movies I, I thought think we I've agreed that we would never bring up that film <laughs> too bad <laughs> Alicia you're gonna have to watch 2-3 in Apocalypse there's just no way around it it's just happening now we're actually gonna program for season 2 of this podcast we're gonna program way more yeah. horror it's every year from here on out is a different wreck year just to, <laughs> just to screw with you alright Alicia how about you what's your big what's your big get I was very surprised at my reaction to Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band <laughs> I was wondering if you were gonna say uh, that yeah not that that should be the film that everyone runs out and sees, but um, that is a film that I would never have written into the show. And it uh, it just slotted into the podcast really easily. But um, I, I think it's a, a cult film that I dis- have like discovered for myself. It's something that I can put on mm-hmm. in the background. And uh, it's it, we've had it on Hollywood Suite a number of times, and okay. it'll probably come back. So, I mean, watch for it. But also, it's not the easiest film to see. Um, and I would say The Wiz, <laughs> coming back to Sydney Lumet, rediscovering. It was really important for me to rediscover a film that I know I saw at five or six years old. And to compare how I saw it through the eyes of a child versus um, a very cynical and jaded film critic now. (laughs) But uh, yeah, I think, and if I had to say go run out and see something, it'd be Orlando for me Mm. with Tilda Swinton. 
Uh, I think for me, obviously, uh, I want everybody to see Eagle versus Shark so we can be friends, Um, obviously. (laughs) But the big surprise for me here was just another girl on the IRT because I was not aware it existed, number one. And then number two, like just the shock that she was not able to make a second film. I'm so glad it's getting a a restoration and a Mm -hmm. redistribution. Um, I love movies that make me yell at the TV because it often means they're surprising me. And that movie is so charming and so surprising. Mm -hmm. And I, I really can't get enough of it. I really want more people to see it. That's a good one. That's a good choice. All right. That is everything for a season one of the A Year in Film podcast. Alicia Fletcher, thank you so much. Thank you, Becky. Cameron Maitland, thank you so much. Thank you. Right back at you. <laughs> and this Thanks, is just, wise. <laughs> and this is just a reminder that season two of the TV series is currently airing. And uh, we're going to be back soon with season two of the podcast and more movies. But uh, the TV series has stuff like How Are the Duck, Dog Day Afternoon, which if you haven't seen it, see it right now. I believe it's on Hollywood Suite. Uh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And, of course, one of my favorites, Ginger Snaps. Oh, man. If you haven't subscribed yet to the podcast, make sure you do so you'll be notified as soon as we're back. Again, thank you so much for listening. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial-free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. Wait, it's a swarm. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.